It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and the world. Today's episode of Policy Forum Pod is an extra special episode in this year of The Voice and the Referendum here in Australia. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. And at this university, we take the challenges that are faced by our country and the opportunities for its future seriously. I'm Anna Greta Hunter, and I'm here with my co-host, Sharon Bessel. Sharon, who are we speaking to today? Anna Greta, it is such a delight to be with you today to have this conversation with Thomas Mayo. And this is a conversation that both you and I have been looking forward to for a very long time, and a conversation that I think our listeners are going to find incredibly powerful. Throughout this year, a year in which Australia will make one of the most important decisions that we've faced, we've had lots of conversations on Policy Forum Pod about what the First Nations Voice to Parliament will mean for this country. We've heard Helen Haynes describe the Uluru Statement from the Heart as the Magna Carta of our time. Dale Aegis talked about the deep value of the South Australian Voice to Parliament. Rachel Perkins talked about coming to terms with the truth of our history, and Catherine Little wove together an incredibly powerful story around the meaning of the voice. And we've heard Kim Rubenstein explain why constitutional change is so important, and Kate Orty talk about the injustices of our justice system. And today we continue our conversations around the voice to parliament. We are incredibly privileged to have Thomas Mayo join us. I heard Thomas give the Nunnawal Lecture here in Canberra some weeks ago, and it was extraordinary. I know many of our listeners will have been following Thomas over the past year, as he's worked tirelessly to explain what The Voice offers to this country and why it matters so very much. Thomas Mayo is a Kararay Aboriginal and a Kukagal Arabomle Torres Strait Islander man. He's the Assistant National Secretary of the Maritime Union of Australia, and Thomas is a signatory of the Uluru Statement of the Heart and has been a leading advocate since its inception in May 2017. He's the author of six books, including the very beautiful Finding the Heart of the Nation and the Voice to Parliament Handbook, which he co-authored with Kerry O'Brien. Thomas, welcome to Policy Forum Pod. It is such a privilege to have you with us. Oh, hi, Sharon. Hi, I'm Magetta. Thomas, it's so good to have you join us for this discussion. It's such an important time in Australia's history. And I'd really love to start today's conversation by reflecting on the Uluru Statement. 
a statement that, of course, begins so beautifully and so powerfully with that phrase, we gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky to make this statement from the heart. What was it like to be there under the southern sky when the Uluru Statement from the Heart was written? Well, it was, um, it was, a, it was an amazing moment because there was so much hard work done to that point. Uh, you know, hard work to survive as a people and keep what culture and languages we could intact um, to, uh, to you know, continue our identity and, uh, you know, a, a heritage that had been going for over 60,000 years up to this point, according to scientists. And, um, and then to learn the lessons you know, our elders trying other statements and petitions over a long period of time, uh, you know, having to go through the heartbreak, the promises made to us and broken, uh, the things tried that failed and, uh, you know, the incremental progress that we have made over the years uh, that taught us all the lessons that go into uh, the Uluru Statement um, and then the hard work to reach that consensus itself. You know, there was a lot of passionate debate and discussion to that moment um, on the 26th of May that morning uh, and um, when the statement was read for the first time you could hear a pin drop in the room, uh, the expectation, the hope uh, and when the final words were read, the um, you know we invite you to walk with us as a movement of the Australian people for a better future, the entire room stood as one and endorsed it with standing acclamation and tears of joy and hope. Uh, it was, um, you know, it, it really was uh, a, a consensus that was a political feat uh, for almost 300 people to come together and reach uh, such an overwhelming agreement. Uh, that It's a political feat that should be celebrated and it's given us the momentum that we needed to get to today. Thomas, it's extraordinary to hear what it was like to be at that National Constitutional Convention. And following the convention, you travelled around the country sharing the Uluru Statement with people right across this land. Our regular listeners will probably recall the remarkably powerful conversation we had a couple of months ago with Catherine Little, who is the CEO of SNAKE, the national organisation that is a voice for Indigenous children. During that conversation, Catherine described the moment when you arrived at her home to share the Uluru Statement with the traditional owners from Alice Springs. Thomas, what was it like to travel around the country and to share with people the Uluru Statement from the heart? Yeah, well, um, if you remember Catherine's description of what it was like, um, you know, it was like that, uh, often cold calling, um, but just uh, it really did grow organically in many ways uh, you know I took it to wherever I could uh, the first places I took it to was Gurindji country and they the Gurindji people are, are big supporters of this because they have uh, like most indigenous people but their first-hand experience is one that is pretty well known uh, it's celebrated in that song by Kevin Carmody and Paul Kelly that they received a handful of sand after something like a nine-year um, strike for equal wages which become about land rights um, but they got some land back and they are they are big supporters of this because they got that handful of sand but they had 
no say over the policies and laws that controlled how they were able to run their cattle company, you know, in the way that they wanted to, uh, or, you know, to enjoy their country, uh, or even over, you know, uh, what happened with their towns. An example for them is that uh, they didn't want the town of Kalkarinji to be annexed as a town. Uh, this is back, I think, in the uh, early 80s. Um, yet it was, and it opened the town up to an influx of alcohol, you know, um, non-Indigenous people coming in to exploit the hope that had been lost by then by selling alcohol. Uh, and I say hope that was lost because, you know, everything that they tried as far as running their own cattle company and mine um, suffered from paternalism, you know, from Canberra, uh, a disconnect in understanding that they just wanted to raise their cattle and enjoy their beef, um, and, uh, you know, um, and sabotage as well. Um, you know, those in power, especially in the country Liberal Party in the Northern Territory, that didn't want them to succeed. Uh, you know, so big supporters of The Voice there. I went to the Kimberley and uh, the Pilbara. Um, just wanted to take it to some you know, major Aboriginal uh, and Torres Strait Islander meetings to begin with. And, um, you know, uh, that confirmed for me in those early days that we got it right. You know, that, um, uh, you know, those people said, you know, you, you've got this right. You know, understanding that history of the struggle. This is the logical next step to constitutionally enshrine a voice to Parliament, uh, but uh, people were always moved by the the canvas in that first couple of years. I travelled with the original canvas, as Catherine Little would have described. It, it's a it's a sacred document. It's the painting, uh, you know, really just stands out. But the the history behind it, that longer history with the um, song lines that are painted on it by the Anangu Law woman, Rini Kulacha, Charmaine Brumby. Uh, and, and Happy Reed um, and Selena Kulitja. Um Within that, the names of all those people that stood as one to endorse it, and then within that, where Uluru would be painted, is the words of the Uluru Statement. Um, and uh, it's been something that has moved people, and that, that was so important to get this commitment from a government, finally, to put the question that we asked, the invitation to the people, and um, we're all going to get that chance to say yes or no on the 14th of October. Thomas, in your book, Finding the Heart of the Nation, you're telling stories of Indigenous leaders from across the country, stories of pain and loss of an uncaring justice system, of children being removed. But you're also sharing stories of extraordinary achievement, of people building their lives and maintaining culture, stories of people caring for their children, their communities, their country, despite discrimination and dispossession. You've just described to us some of these tensions that are there between making progress within the colonised system and with things like land rights uh, and the ongoing tension of discrimination and disadvantage within the structures of the system. It really strikes me that a dominant theme through the year is not being heard, particularly not being heard in the corridors of power. And so I wonder what will the voice to Parliament mean for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia? It'll mean greater progress. Um, one of the things that we learnt when we considered uh, proposing a constitutionally enshrined voice when we were making the Uluru Statement is that we have seen that when we have had a voice, and we've had voices before, and when I say voice, I mean representative bodies or advisory committees, um, we've had such things uh, many times in the past 
hundred years, um, but each time they have been silenced or just simply removed by government and either removed by intimidation and ignorance, especially the earlier ones where they could, you know, steal our children, direct us to work without pay. Uh, they could decide who we could marry. They could exile us from country and separate us from our families. Those powers were used to intimidate the representatives on our previous committees uh, and, um, and see those disappear from the public eye. And then since 1967, we've had representative bodies such as the uh, National Aboriginal Consultative Committee and the National Aboriginal Congress uh, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. And so we've seen that when a government has established a voice, uh, they have the next one has always come along and gotten rid of it. Uh, and so that was one of the lessons. But the lesson that I wanted to get to here is that when we have had a voice, we've seen greater progress, you know, and that's a bit of a no-brainer, right? If people have the ability to come together and have de informed debate and discussion amongst themselves about what the solutions are in their communities, and they're able to, um, you know, then take that out through representatives that they choose and they can hold to account so that they're genuinely representing the interests of the people, then you're going to get better, you're going to get more coherency, uh, you're going to get that strength that comes with coherency and, uh, you know, informed solutions uh, and the logic that you put behind it and the thinking. Uh, and um, and you're going to get better results. So that was the other lesson, that when we have a voice, we make greater progress. And when we don't have one, we go backwards. And we see 2023, the Closing the Gap Report, another report that, um, you know, is dismal. Uh, gaps widening, not closing, widening. Uh, and so what we will get out of a voice is the ability to give advice that is informed genuinely from the grassroots, that is through representatives that have purely um, better solutions, um, that interest at heart. Uh, and finally, we will also have a voice that is backed by the Australian people through this referendum succeeding. And that then says to all future parliaments that have always failed Indigenous people to this point, that we understand that you'll get better results when you listen to Indigenous people. And we've set up the expectation in our constitution that from now on, you will listen to them, at least listen to them before you make a decision. Um, and from that, we'll see better um, outcomes in housing, employment, health, education, uh, you know, all of those things that are the priorities in our communities, and I've been to many communities in the last six years, remote communities, urban communities. Um, those issues that I just mentioned are common and, um, and we'll make greater progress when we have a voice. Thomas, after voice, the Uluru Statement talks about Makarata. What does that process mean to First Nations people and to the future of our country as a whole? Yeah, Makarata is a Yolnu word uh, the only people are of northeast Arnhem Land, and it's um, it's described in the Uluru Statement as a coming together after a struggle. What it is is it's really a, a process of making peace, uh, a dispute resolution process, uh, and and so the Makarata Commission um, is named because it is about working on uh, understanding and peace and being closer together than ever before, which is the way the Makarata process works, and. Um, 
And so it would supervise a process of agreement making, because agreement making is already going on. Uh, treaty talks have begun in most states and the Northern Territory in Victoria. It's more than 10 years into the process. Experts say that treaty will take 30 or 40 years because, you know, it's an agreement. Uh, the, there's that fear mongering out there that the voice is going to force on this, you know, big bad treaty. Well, you know, it can't force anything on. It's an advisory committee can give advice. And anyway, the treaty talks are happening at the state level. You know, it's a, a more local level thing and uh, both parties need to agree. So, you know, there's, there's no forcing of anything. Um, but it would supervise the process of agreement making. There's already somewhat of a treaty in the, for the Noongar people in Western Australia, um, the uh, Noongar Agreement. Um, so it shows that these things are possible, but it also supervises a process of truth-telling, just helping Australians to understand what the truth of our past is. But um, more importantly from the dialogues was the opportunity for Indigenous people in their local areas to share what they've been through, you know, the truth of, of what they've been through. And that in itself is a part of a healing. And I think we're going to see, you know, um, better outcomes in health, you know, mental health especially, uh, with the Makarata Commission, you know, and, uh, and that opportunity. In that coming together after a struggle, which is such a powerful concept, we do need to think far more deeply about how we have some very hard but honest conversations about our history and about the reality and the impacts of colonisation, not just in the past, but the ongoing impacts. And part of truth-telling is also around listening. Thomas, I'd love to hear your thoughts around the role that non-Indigenous Australians need to play in that truth-telling process and how we need to listen. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, this is a, a really important thing and I think Australians have been getting better at it, actually. Um, we, you know, we've come a long way uh, and this is one of the reasons why I think we're ready for this referendum is that we've already been doing a lot of truth-telling in this country, right? Um, there's some great documentaries and movies about Indigenous history and struggle. Uh, you know, there's more and more uh, Indigenous authors, um, so you can, you know, learn straight uh, from our book, really, our words, you know. Um, and there's other non-Indigenous historians that are, are writing great stuff, you know, to help us to understand um, people. Uh, and Lyndall Ryan, as one, Professor Lyndall Ryan, who has been doing a study on on the massacres that occurred across the continent, you know. Um, but there's also a lot of truth-telling in uh, Royal Commission reports, you know, and you know, we're going back uh, more than 20 years now, the Royal Commission into Deaths in Custody, um, the Royal Commission into Stolen Generations, and those, those reports chock-a-block full of truth-telling, and they're not the sort of thing that, you know, <laughs> the average Australian is likely to pick up and read, but, you know, it's all there. But there is, you know, in, in um, uh, art and song and, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of truth-telling that's going on. And, um, you know, even acknowledgement of country and welcome to country, uh, that, that is a, a bit of truth-telling that we're all becoming used to and appreciating, you know, where other countries have it as a sort of matter of process now and a, a matter of, um, you know, expected respect 
you know, like in New Zealand for the Māori people. I think uh, I think we're going that way. Um, I just hope that it is enough um, for people to get to that ballot box on the 14th of October and say, you know what, let's just accept the truth and move forward and, and have a great healing here. Uh, and um, at the same time, do something practical that will close the gap. As I mentioned earlier, the key to closing the gap, I believe it is. Accept the truth and start the process of healing. It's an extraordinary opportunity that we're presented with on the 14th of October. Thomas, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Thomas Mayo talking about the Uluru Statement, the First Nations Voice to Parliament and the future of our country. Thomas, there's a a rather long question to follow, but it's something that I really wanted to ask you about. White Australia is in many ways a very individualistic society. We talk about a fair go and egalitarianism, but there is a real core of individualism. And one of the things that really struck me when I read your book, Finding the Heart of the Nation, was the way you describe your experiences in the Maritime Union, and particularly some of those struggles around the wharf strikes and the lockouts in the 1980s. And you talk about bringing people from weak individualism to structured collective strength. And you also talk in your book about collective wisdom, the wisdom of 65,000 years of Indigenous knowledge and about the way that we can find our collective heart. And as I read your book, I really wondered how unionism and Indigenous ways of being have made you think about the collective good and how we can think about some of those things as a nation and and what we can learn from those ideas of the collective good. Yeah, I think uh, this is something that is, um, you know, I've noticed a long time ago that, uh, you know, our culture, I, I... I know is a sharing and um, collective culture. You know, it's a generous culture, uh, and um, and I found you know great similarities in the way that we did things in the union. Um, I'm an official of the Maritime Union of Australia because I was a wharfie for 16 years, and uh, the, one of the disputes that really shaped me was the 1998 Patrick's dispute, and what it was was seeing how. When we were locked out, um, and for those that don't know, it was, um, you know, wharfies around the country were basically, um, you know, mercenaries came in on the wharves through the gates and through, you know, off rubber zodiac dinghies climbing up the wharf and then physically dragged us. They had 
They had um, dogs, you know, on leashes, and they physically dragged us out of our livelihoods and locked the gates. And um, uh, But what I saw during that dispute, that months-long dispute, was that um, the community came out to support us. And the reason why, uh, not just because it was an injustice and not really an Australian way that we do uh, industrial relations, you know, um, was that uh, we had used our our strength to support many others across society, you know, and it was really proud of the support over a long period of time that was given to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the Pilbara strike in 1946, you know, the Gurindji Wavefield walk-off in 1966, uh, you know, over and over. You see these acts of solidarity, but with refugees and asylum seekers and other workers and, you know, for peace internationally. Uh, you know, there were these these um, actions that were taken that were not only a, weren't about our own wages and conditions, uh, and so um, that was um, that was something that uh, you know taught me that you uh, you're not only stronger when you come together, but the whole you know you you really need to use um, what you have to help others, you know, for equality, you know, and. That that um, that is what I was really talking about there, and it's it's a natural thing to do. Again, you know, for people to come together uh, and have a structure behind it. That was the other part of my learnings. There is that uh, unity is more than just a word. You know, it, it's not uh, just a rallying catch cry that you know weaves magic into getting the results that you want. But it requires a lot of hard work. You know, and coming together requires that listening. Uh, it requires uh, reciprocity. It requires, you know, an, a, a, a desire um, to move forward together and therefore uh, a willingness to reach a compromise amongst yourselves. You know, not everybody, that's the nature of compromise. Not everybody gets everything that they want, but you reach a position where um, what you want is something that all, uh, well, at least a great majority can agree to, right? Um, yeah, so... Uh, that that taught me that uh, was one of the things that indicated to me that what was missing uh, from all of our process and efforts to, uh, at being heard um, to get justice, to get recognition, uh, to see better outcomes in health and housing and all the rest, what was missing was that um, ability to come together uh, and um, have that strength of unity. It is such a beautiful vision, bringing together the generosity of spirit that we'll find collectively working together and the ways in which structures like this will help us care for each other. And I'd like to do some imagining for our future. You described the Uluru Statement. You've explained to us so beautifully why the Uluru Statement is a structure that will enable listening, communication, discussion, but particularly deep listening. What are you hoping that we'll hear and learn when we genuinely listen to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices? Well, I don't think it's all about deficit, you know. Um, we have, you know, massive challenges to overcome that when uh, the government and the parliament listens to the, the solutions and what we've seen that has worked and what hasn't, uh, we're going to get better outcomes in those areas that I mentioned that are the priorities. But it's it's also about what we can offer, you know, and the previous question was about working collectively and sharing 
uh, and being generous, I think that is something that we can bring to the decision-making table uh, when we have this voice. Um, you know, how to care for our country and be harmonious with nature and, uh, you know, the flora and fauna um, is something that we can bring to the table and advise the parliament and government about. Um, and, you know, so we're also, there's also this, we're divided right now, okay? People are saying, you know, the No campaign is saying that this will divide Australia. Um, it's the complete opposite. Um, we're divided right now. Indigenous people aren't included in our constitution. Uh, Indigenous people have, you know, proportionately, the, we're the most incarcerated people on the entire planet. You know, that's here in Australia, the most incarcerated people on the planet. Um, we, we're already divided, but this will unify us. This will uh, not only resolve those issues, but it will see us included for the first time after over 200 years of specific exclusion. Um, and, uh, and that, I believe, will make us stronger as a nation. You know, it'll make us, um, you know, a, a more reconciled uh, and honest and uh, an inclusive nation. And that is something that would be a legacy that would be wonderful to leave to our children. Thomas, you, you made the point that this isn't all about deficit. And I think that's such an incredibly important point because often when we do talk about closing the gap or we talk about some of those really shocking statistics, we, we assume that there is a deficit. And yet one of the things that I think has been really powerful and incredibly exciting over recent years is the extent to which... Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander knowledge and science has been brought into non-Indigenous science to enrich our understanding of things like fire regimes, management of country. Um, there's a, a whole range of, of areas where Indigenous knowledge enriches what we already know. Now, and I guess the, the, the opportunity we have on the 14th of October is to bring those things together, you know, and to say that we will move forward together, recognising the value of all knowledge that we have in this country. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, yeah, this, this, when we have uh, this successful referendum, it's going to be a massive step forward together, you know, uh, in reconciliation. Um, there's just so much to gain. And, and really, I, I just want to say this, there's nothing to lose from saying yes. There really is nothing to lose for anybody. Um, we, you know, I mentioned it's an advisory committee, you know, the, the words that will go into the constitution um, just guarantee that there's recognition through a voice that can make representations to the parliament and the government on matters that affect Indigenous people. Uh, and the parliament decides the composition, powers, functions and procedures of the voice and everything else as per normal. It's an advisory committee. The voice will only decide what advice it gives. And the thing to consider there though, is that that advice um, coming from the people that are most affected through representatives that they choose, through representatives that they can hold to account, where the Australian people have said that we should listen to that advice, um, that you know is going to have the, the power to, to be able to improve our lives. But uh, yeah, this um, uh, there is nothing to lose. It can't take anyone's backyard, and we've heard that fear mongering before. You know, when Indigenous people got, you know, native title across the line with Mabo, 
or land rights in the Northern Territory back in 1975. Nobody lost anything for all the fear-mongering. Nobody lost anything. Um, when we got equal wages in you know the 60s uh, and early 70s, again, they said that businesses would shut down, that the cattle stations and pastoral stations wouldn't be able to operate. Well, that was wrong. You know, Indigenous people got equal wages. And what in fact happened because of uh, racism is they got rid of a lot of the Indigenous workers, you know, because they had to pay them the same. Um, the um, And when the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission was established, so our last real proper representative voice, um, the uh, John Howard was in opposition and he said, well, you know, if you establish ATSIC in legislation, you're going to divide Australia and we're going to see a black parliament and it'll lead to a separate government. These are the things that he said about the establishment of a voice back then. Uh, is that familiar? We're hearing all of this all over again. Um, and of course, ATSIC was legislated and, you know, what he said didn't come to pass. What actually did happen uh, was that ATSIC saw great progress, especially in housing and communities and employment and the self-esteem of Indigenous people and learning about leadership and uh, the bureaucracy and politics. And you see some of the great leaders like um, Arnie Pat Turner and, uh, you know, um, uh, Senator Pat Dodson, uh, you know, uh, Professor Megan Davis that found their voice, that learnt uh, how to be leaders in in Attic, um, but how it amplified its problems and a lot of people were led to believe that it was a failure. Well, it wasn't. It just didn't have the time to evolve like all other institutions. Um, and so, um, you know, this is this is uh, something that we're all going to gain from and, uh, and there's nothing to lose. Don't listen to the fear-mongering. Thomas, the research that, that I do is with children about their lives, about what makes life tough and about their hopes and their dreams. And to me, one of the most beautiful parts of the Uluru Statement is the part that says, when we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk together in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to the country. Can you share with us what those words mean to you? Yeah, I think um, the what comes through there is the generosity uh, of Indigenous peoples, you know, that we, after all that has been done and all that we've been through, um, that we would talk about our future in this way, you know, sharing our culture, you know, it will be a gift to this country. And absolutely it is a gift. Um, there's nothing sinister. Uh, you know, it's well thought through. It's based on the history of a long struggle and it is also uh, a generous offer. Mm. Thomas, on October the 14th, Australia will vote on what is the most important decision in a generation, perhaps the most important decision in our recent history, and certainly a vote that will define our, our future. If it's a yes vote, what do you think the future will hold? What challenges remain before us and what are the opportunities that it will open up? If it's a yes vote, we want to see this voice up and running as soon as possible. And we've already said that to the government as Indigenous leaders. Uh, they will run a process of going to Indigenous communities to consult with us uh, about the model 
So how many representatives, uh, what the regions are they're chosen from, how they're elected, uh, those types of things will be something that will be done in consultation with Indigenous people first and then a bill will be developed that will go to the parliament uh, and there's already a, um, you know, a commitment from the government that to develop the model uh, with the opposition, you know, with the, the, the parliament will develop the model with bipartisanship and come to an agreement on how all of that works. And, and this is an important, just uh, to digress, what we're voting on here is a principle because our constitution is the size of uh, a passport. Uh, it's just dot point principles, basically, you know, what powers, what laws can the parliament make and what institutions do they need to establish? Um, but then the parliament decides everything else. So that's the process I'm talking about now. Indigenous people have a say, you know, so we, we step one, we agree as Australians that the principle that should be in our constitution is we recognise Indigenous people and we want to listen to them when we make decisions about them. Then, uh, you know, Indigenous people shape the model with the government, the government takes it to parliament, the parliament works on that, uh, and then it passes through and away we go. And we want that to happen before the next federal election. Uh, because we want to be having a say and um, and uh, influencing the election commitments that are made by the various political parties. Um, and then that will see results. You know, we will see better policy, um, you know, uh, starting to come out pretty quickly. That will have a real effect and improve people's lives. Thomas Mayo. It has been a privilege to talk to you today. This has been a remarkable conversation. Thank you for spending some time with us and thank you for sharing your wisdom and your vision. And Thomas, thank you for the work that you've done and that you continue to do to bring about a just and a unified Australia for all of us. And we do hope that on October the 14th, we all share in that vision and we see a resounding yes vote. Thomas, I wonder if we could end this conversation by asking you to share with us the Uluru Statement from the Heart. I'd love to. We gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or mother nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished, and it coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? That a people's possessed a land for 60 millennia, and this sacred link should disappear from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, 
We are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alien from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish, they will walk in two worlds, and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarada is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarada Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967 we were counted 2017 we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. That's it. Thomas, thank you. It's, it is so beautiful. It is so powerful. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Anna Greta. Thank you so much. That was extraordinary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.